0: Welcome to the Defender Podcast, a resource to help mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm your host, Herbie Newell. It's Wednesday, June 24th, 2020, and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. And today we are joined for part two of our panel on racial injustice. We have assembled a new group of pastors and leaders to walk us through a gospel approach to racial reconciliation. And how do we view racial injustice through the lens of the gospel? We are pleased to have our brother, Eric Saunders from McLean Bible Church, as well as Alton Hardy from Urban Hope Development in Fairfield, Alabama, and then joining us from California, uh, Quentin Dial, uh, who played football for the University of Alabama, the San Francisco 49ers, and the Green Bay Packers. And these three men, I know you will be blessed by hearing them uh, lead us into looking at racial injustice through the lens of the gospel. But before we hear from this important panel, I want to remind you that it's summertime. Uh, Summer started this past weekend, and it is officially time for Stand for Orphans, and we want to encourage you and your children to get out and take a Stand for Orphans, and while Stand for Orphans may look a little bit different with social distancing, we also know that our children are home without many activities, and there's no better time for them to use their ingenuity and their creativity to take a Stand for Orphans. We are encouraging children to look at their talents, maybe to go on social media and to play a song on the piano or the guitar, or to use a a baking talent. To sell cookies, whatever their talent may be, to raise money on behalf of orphans and to take a stand for orphans this summer. We have a $50,000 match that we will have this summer. So every dollar that your child raises up to $50,000 will be matched by a generous donor. So take a stand for orphans. Go to lifelinechild.org backslash stand for orphans. Again, that's lifelinechild.org backslash stand for orphans to download the kit and to find ways that you, your family, Family and your children can take a stand for orphans this summer. Well, welcome to this very important panel. Uh, we are grateful to be joined by uh, three men who have different perspectives, but ultimately want to lead us to how the church and the gospel can be an instrument in racial reconciliation. And uh, I'm just so excited to get to hear from each and every one of these brothers and their perspectives. As we know, 2020 has been a year where we have seen racial injustice play out in our country, uh, also around the world. And certainly it is not something new to 2020. Uh, unfortunately, it is age old from the very beginning of the founding of the United States of America. Uh, but we have seen it play out in in ways that have brought our country to a place of really asking ourselves, how do we find justice? How do we find racial justice in our nation? And Ultimately, as believers, we know that that is rooted and found in the gospel of Christ Jesus and that our churches need to be the answer of racial justice. And unfortunately, and even as we walk through this panel, we know that sometimes our churches are the most segregated places in our country. Um, we are joined, for instance, by one of our brothers, Quentin Dial. Uh, Quentin is originally from Birmingham. He played football at the University of Alabama, went on to pursue professional football career by playing with the 49ers in San Francisco and the Green Bay Packers. He's retired and still resides in the Bay Area with his wife, Mika, and their sons, Tatum and Jaden. Uh, during his later teenage years, after uh, enduring a number of obstacles, he uh, experienced a tragic loss of his mother. And so he met and made connection with the Denham family. And Paul and Denise Denham, along with their three daughters, Holly, Molly, and Maddie, welcomed Quentin into their lives. And he was unofficially, officially been a part of the family ever since. But Quentin could tell us, and I know he will, about how much harmony really there is racially amongst athletic teams. In our athletic places, we have racial harmony. Uh, We play together. We work together. We uh, strive towards goals together. But unfortunately, many times, our churches, we don't have that same type of harmony. We're also joined by a dear brother from Birmingham, Alton Hardy. He serves as the pastor and founder of Urban Hope Community Church and is an ordained teaching elder of the Presbyterian Church in America. He's also the co-founder of Urban Hope Development in Fairfield, Alabama. He's a native of Selma, Alabama, and has resided in Louisville, Kentucky, and Grand Rapids, Michigan, for many years before returning to Alabama. Alton's educational background includes a degree from Alpena Community College, Reformed Bible College, Calvin Seminary, and a certificate of completion from Antioch Leadership Training in Reformed Preaching. Alton is happily married to Sandra and they have five children. And in his free time, he enjoys reading and watching sports. And he's passionate about addressing the conditions facing urban communities. And then we're also just uh, proud to be joined from uh, Virginia, a brother that I have watched from afar and I'm grateful to get to hear from, Brother Eric Saunders. He is a teaching and campus pastor at McLean Bible Church. The Arlington campus is where he resides, and he previously served in pastoral roles in Raleigh, North Carolina, and Hampton Roads, Virginia, he is married to Janique, and they have two children, Eli and Roman. So, brothers, thank you for joining us today. And, and brother Eric, if you would just start us off and talk about your personal experience as a as a black man, in both how you've grown up and how you are responding to the events that we have seen unfold around our country this year.
1: Yeah, uh, appreciate the question. Um, so, um, as an African-American man, I grew up in southeast uh, Virginia and grew up uh, with uh, parents who were very much affected by uh, issues surrounding race and racial injustice, even in our country um, mm-hmm. I'm from an early age. Uh, my mother came from a, a sharecropper's family um, in North Carolina, uh, my father um, went to segregated schools and experienced integration and experienced um, all the turmoil and rage surrounding that. And so that necessarily affected uh, the way that I was raised and I was brought up. Now, of course, my family taught me uh, to love people, um, irrespectful, ir- irrespective of what they look like, um, race, creed, whatever. Um, however, uh, my parents definitely had um, a, uh, a suspicion mm. <laughs> of, of of white brothers and sisters because of what they went through. Mm. And one of the things my mother uh, taught me at an early age was this. She taught me um, a, that I was considered black and she taught me the beauty of my skin tone and my hair type all because she knew that I lived in the world mm. with its norms and... Uh, advertisements, and all of that, that would teach me that I was less than. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up very aware of racial dynamics, very aware that I may be considered inferior by others, but very aware because of the Christian heritage of my mother, uh, that that's not the case with God, that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. So I hope that answered your question.
0: Yeah. Oh, I appreciate that, brother. That's that's fantastic. Uh, Quentin, uh, I know you have Uh, You're the youngest among us, and you've got an experience as well. And can you talk to us just about your personal experience, but also just how you've processed these events?
2: A personal experience growing up, I grew up in the inner city of Birmingham. Um, Lost my mom when I was 10 years old to a house fire. Um, Had to move in with my dad, and um, there were a lot of challenges that we faced um you know living in inner city and having to the daily struggles of you know being a black man for example not the quality of education not the quality of daily essential items that we didn't have access to and so these are some of the struggles that you know I had our face growing up on a consistent basis but um to answer your other question how am I looking at things that are going on right now in twenty twenty um i say it's a it's it's tough it's a it's a tough question you know in a in a sense you can understand the pain that a lot of families are going through and the hardships but at the looking at looking at it from an objective standpoint from the other side you know, I think that could be a better way and a solution, you know, to address some of these issues. I think we have to, you know, have these uncomfortable conversations with people. You know, you got to get people out of their comfort zone in order for them to realize and address that there is an issue, you know. So I just, my opinion about it.
0: Brother Alton, I know that uh, you've had the opportunity as well to grow up in segregated Birmingham. You've had the opportunity to serve uh, for many years in East Birmingham. You've lived in Michigan and Kentucky. Talk about your growing up as an African-American man through that and just how you're processing some of the most latest events.
3: Yeah, um, being the oldest in the group, 53, brother's, I grew up in Sardis, um, and like my brother, I was a sharecropper kid, didn't really know or understand any of that when I was living there. It was not until I moved out of Sardis, Selma, that I realized I was pretty much a modern-day slave in that sense. But but moving to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I spent 35 years, uh, and unfortunately, my parents were very uh, uneducated and illiterate, and, and I would say just seeing and, and oppression, stuff like that. Uh, I'm still trying to think through all of this, but my daddy became somewhat very abusive. Not somewhat he did to my mom. My mom had 12 children by my dad. My dad had a lot more children outside my mom. And I knew of God, you know, being in the South, but my mom didn't sit us down and really help or anyone in our family, for that sake, helped develop what I call a healthy Omaro day. We didn't get that. So I grew up, which I see in a lot of African Americans, probably had a deeply marred self-image of myself and didn't know where it was coming from, but I knew it. I sensed it. Um, And it was like, uh, I'll give you a point. All my brothers, most of us, when we left the South, And even though we were segregated, oppressed, ten boys, two girls, six of us, as soon as we got out of the south, guess who we got married to? (laughs) Take a guess. Um, Yeah, we all interracially married, and they're all since got divorced. But I thought, and and I was heading that direction too. That's another story. But but I had a deep embedded self hatred um, about myself and that's a whole nother conversation about race and what it does to you to say the least race has been a part of my life since I was in my mother's womb. Um, but when I got to Grand Rapids guys, um, I was called the N word so many times. I was beat up, spit on, fired multiple times by white companies just for being black. Um, that's part of my whole life story. And, um, It was just normal for me to be called the N word. And God in his providence seemed like he just had me. I was always the only black to be in a company. And because I had some of that good work ethic, I was just always trying to work hard. And, And none of that stuff made sense to me then until now. Here I am 53 and people say, man, how is a guy like you in a PCA, a Southern, supposedly racist denomination and in Birmingham of all places. And so how I am looking at what's happening now, um, I don't tell the story enough, but I I can tell you guys here, and I'm starting to tell it more And before y'all guys came online. Man, I had a hate for white people that could not. There was no book could you have given to me. There was no um pill that you could have served me that I could remove the 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 hatred that I had in my heart um when it came to white people and and so obviously that changed and so if you ask me, so Alton what changed? How did you how did you get to where you are now? You have a multi ethnic congregation in Fairfield and you're preaching in all these churches and whatever, working on the inner city ground and Fairfield and and addressing the plight of black young boys. Quit, you know this, man, fatherlessness is everywhere. How did you get to that place to where you are now? I'll tell you brothers, man, uh, how I'm seeing this stuff. Um, I had to meet a real Jesus. Racism almost had me commit suicide. That's how bad it was because I thought God didn't like me. He hated me because of my skin color. I used to take baths in bleach, try to light my skin up. So when I talk about this stuff, I'm not running to no books, guys. I had to meet a real Jesus because I had no other place to go. And, um, and so how I'm doing this, uh, I'm trying to bring the John 17 God man into the conversation. That's what I'm trying to do. And I hear a lot of conversations where the John 17 and the Ephesians two man doesn't come into the equation. And I just, so that's kind of how I'm where I go because there was no conversation you could have had with me. They could have got me to forgive to even be in the conversation. And so, and that's kind of where I'm falling right now. Just like, uh, where's Jesus in the conversation and can he, Heal the divide between two warring groups of people and bring peace between them. If he can't, listen, so I say this facetiously, as if he can't do it, can you please point Pastor Hardy to that person who can, mm. so I can go to him and say, worship him, if it's not Jesus. <laughs> so I stopped there.
0: Oh. I mean, even as I, as I hear our brother Alton give his testimony and his story, Brother Eric, I, I know you get to serve in um, a multi-racial, multi-ethnic congregation, not just black and white, but Asian and Latino and men and women from different nations and, and countries. But, but even as we hear Brother Alton's story, as you have the opportunity to minister to white brothers and sisters who quite honestly don't understand, it's, it's not their story. We know that the Bible calls us to empathy, it calls us to enter into another's pain and suffering. How would you counsel white brothers and sisters to, to react right now to the racial injustice that we see around us?
1: Uh, I think that's a great question. Um, I, I would appeal to our, um, our shared love of Jesus Christ and our shared commitment to the scriptures i will point them over to romans 12 i believe where it says to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep that's a command given to us by the god that we both love and what that command does not say it does not say to ask people why they are weeping or or to critique why they're weeping it says to simply weep with those who weep and I, i do think the reason why we can't do that is because we live in a triumphal society in which we don't, have a, we don't have categories in our lives for like tears and sitting in issues that we can't personally solve. We are people who value efficiency and solutions, and we want to get after it. Uh, but I do think the Bible does give us a language to do that, and it's the language of lament, yeah. right? All throughout the Psalms, you see that. And so typically what I do with people is say, hey, listen, that's a brother or sister in Christ that you share this shared commitment to Jesus Christ and to his word, obey his commands and grieve with those who grieve. Enter into their pain because we serve a savior uh, in Philippians 2 who did that same thing. So I think that's what I would say to that.
0: Amen, Brother Quentin, you know, one of the things that, that I love, but I think unfortunately being just very transparent, with white brothers and sisters, unfortunately we see things as projects that we want to fix or help. The thing I love about your story is Holly, who I know personally, she does not, when they they brought you into their family, they didn't see you as a project. They saw you as a brother. They saw you as someone who's truly a part of their family. Why is it so important? And how have you been a beneficiary of not being seen as a project, but by seeing as a person and who's been loved and cared for and is a brother. And uh, for people who don't know, Quentin uh, is a massive man. I mean, he played defensive line for the University of Alabama. And Holly, his sister, is, is very petite uh, in, in, in height. And so when you see the two of them side by side, just the, the size is different. Um, but you see the love that you both have for each other. So how how why is it important that that white people not see the hurting as a project, but truly uh, welcome them into their family?
2: Great question. Um, I think for me, my personal experience with the Denims, it um, started from afar, getting to know them throughout. Uh, I think it was my sophomore year of high school when I I first met him. And um, something I always longed for was to have a family connection. And I didn't have that at home. I didn't have this stable environment. And that's something that they welcomed with open arms for me. Um, I think any kid, black or white, you know, longs for – to be loved and to be cared for and to be supported and encouraged in whatever whatever it is they want to do. Um, Also think it's important that white people understand the disadvantages Mm -hmm. that black people go through and the the challenges that we face on the daily. Um, Just being black and, you know, I mean, because it is a challenge. I've I faced challenges to this day, but I do think it's important. Hmm.
0: Brother Alton, um, why do you think that ultimately it's the church's role in seeking racial reconciliation? Why it's not pol- political leaders, um, it's not the, the role of the secular or the humanitarian, but why is it so important that it's the church's role to seek racial reconciliation?
3: Great question. Um, when I was, I had the opportunity about four months ago to take a group of whites, West school here locally, um, to, to my home, to Sardis, which is out in the middle of no man's land, and took about 240 um, whites, uh, students, parents, administrators. They wanted to see where I had grown up at, and the outhouse, the poverty, and um, and because they they wanted to know what's the you see this massive guy um, sweeping and crying about Jesus all the time, and they wanted to know what's behind my heart that drives me. So I took them to Sardis, out in the middle of nowhere, on the place where we ate from a dump um, as kids because of poverty. And and the thing about it um, that I told them then, why I think the church has to lead in this, uh, no, everyone knows Selma has racial stuff, had has racial history. But when we were poor sharecroppers, kids, family, and we had a lot of hungry days out in Sardis. If you ever go downtown Selma, I want you just to notice the, the large mega um, sized churches that were downtown white churches. And we we're only 15, 20 minutes away. But because of the sin of racism that I hate, no church, no extension of Jesus' heart never came to feed us. And brothers, that, that, that one right there, um, if I had my racial struggles with Jesus, that's been the toughest one. And I had to wrestle through that because I said, Jesus, if, if the church is is your bride, um, we can't. I just, I just, so I had to come to a conclusion about some things about church, the professing church, the true church. And it's been a, and brother, I had to tell you, it's been a, a long, struggle It hasn't come in a two-day journey. It's been a, um, a long, tedious, lament um, journey and it finally Jesus just broke through to me that um, that, um, that that John 17 it just father give them the glory that I have with you that they might be one mm. as we are. And I said, Lord, you gotta, you gotta help me get that, that glory that's, that you're saying that you need to give to your disciples. And I tell you, brothers, uh, that's the antidote, that's the remedy, that's the, um, it's not coming from anywhere else but God's people. And so that's what I preach and I said, wherever Urban Hope goes, that we would be the expression of the heart of Jesus as it relates to the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, and all of those in between. And, and maybe the my, people who came before us didn't necessarily understand all of that. But at least for, for us in this hour, um, that we will not see people as projects but we would see people as image bearers made by God, created by God. And, and so therefore urban hope is endeavoring to, to converge both of those worlds the middle-class whites, Christians, the black, the poor, I'm calling it the manifold. And, um, and that's because of the church, the grace of God that has been uh, released upon us that we have received. And so, um, I only think the church can do that because the church knows something that the world doesn't know. Mm. We know that grace, mm. that that sovereign grace, that electing grace, that, you know, that that's what sets us apart from why we can love our neighbors as ourselves because we've been loved. We can't love someone we hate if we haven't been loved by the one who loved us while we were enemies of us. So... It's, to me, that's the that's the church, and so I, I don't. I, and that's where I'm I'm hanging my hat. That's where I'm. That's where I'm going to die on that one. It's the church. It's it's because Pastor Hardy, you've been beat up, you've been spit upon, you've been your family has been done wrong by racism, and so I get this question all the time. Well, why don't you hate? I take me Ephesians 4, 31, 32. How'd you get rid of the bitterness? I said, I didn't go to Walmart and get it. I didn't go to Kmart, they don't even exist anymore. But where'd you go? I said, one day I finally saw the cross for what it was. Mm. And I saw how bad I was. And I thought I was okay, I guess. And, And then God says, well now, you now forgive those who have hurt you as I have forgiven you. You show kindness and compassion. That's that's my message, and I'm not denoting all the other issues that are happening, man. But I said we can get. I don't even think the church has gotten that part right. That's the part that I'm keep trying to get back to. I said we haven't even gotten that part right, and and you know, I, you know, I don't preach multi ethnic church. Let me I'm not speaking to this. We don't even showcase that, but we have it in Fairfield. It's not even on our internet, on our, we don't, we don't, I and mean, then people say, well, why are you not marketing that? How can I market something that I'm not, I'm not trying to, I just believe in Jesus is who he says he is. He draws you, he draws me. That's just an outworking of the gospel in its authentic form. And I don't have to try to market it. It is what it is. And you be you and I be me, and god is doing it in birmingham it's probably the best kept secret in birmingham because we're just as white black poor in between gang bangers hood dudes we're all there and we're all doing what we're called to do and no one is trying to trying to make it be something that it's not we're just there because jesus has saved us by his grace and that is a message that i think the church needs to stand on fight for hold true more than anything and Stay away from the fringes of the social cues that are coming from the world that are impending upon us, and I'm I'm, I'm fighting for that right now because there was nothing that could have gotten me to forgive whites. Nothing. I want people to hear me. There was nothing. It was I was I was I was I was bound up. The history was too deep in my heart. Jesus had to reach down. And, and, he, and he had to show me who I was so that I could receive his grace rightly and then release it. Mm. That's, that's Pastor Hardy in a nutshell. And that's the message of the church. We've been saved by grace through faith, and that is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God.
0: Mm. Amen. Brother Eric, I know at McLean Bible, uh, in response really to the gruesome video we saw of Ahmad Aubrey being gunned down while out for a jog. Uh, Pastor Mike Kelsey and Pastor David Platt at your church delivered a powerful uh, statement on racism in the church and living in a multicultural church. And something that Mike said, which shook me to the core, was when he said, as a a black man, many times in a multi-ethnic church, I feel like an invited guest, or a welcomed guest, I think is what he said. I'm welcomed, I'm allowed in, I'm wanted, but I don't feel like I could put up pictures. I don't feel like I can open up the refrigerator, uh, because I'm a welcomed guest. Um, can you help especially white brothers and sisters understand what that feels like and what that looks like? And can you also give us pastorally ways that we can live in harmony, not as welcomed guests, but as family of God inside of the church?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I would say this. There was a book written by a lady named Corey Edwards, and she wrote about multi-ethnic churches in America. And her conclusion was this: her conclusion was saying that multi-ethnic churches only work to the extent that white people feel comfortable. And so, what what what, what he meant, what they meant by that, was typically what happens in multi-ethnic church is. Um, white cultural norms tend to dominate worship so white styles of preaching, white worship those kind of things um and so that contributes to the feeling of minority feeling feeling like welcome guests Mm -hmm. feeling like you have to leave a bit of yourself at the door in order to enter into um uh, the church gathering and so i i guess with that said some of the advice that i would give to our white brothers and sisters is this is to risk feeling uncomfortable at church because I can guarantee you that if it's a multi ethnic church, typically speaking, it's typically the minorities that, built, that, 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 that feel the brunt of the discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of that, I mean, I know many people who are listening, they may not be leaders in the church. They may be thinking, Yo, how, how exactly do I do that? For instance, well, what might it look like for you, instead of always inviting maybe a white friend or colleague to come to you, what might it look like for you to go to them on their turf? Right. What might it look like for you to um, acquiesce yourself to their interests right? and, and to their the things that they like and love um, rather than thinking that what you like is automatically what they might like. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and I'm telling you, even the small things go a long way. Right. Um, but I, I do think we need to start thinking that way if we truly want to consider how do we make the body of Christ a place in which everyone feels at home? And I would say, I think we're onto something when everyone in the church feels a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> mm. Brother, I, so, yeah.
0: brother I, I think of in a lot of these things, and, and I'd love to know either your agreement or how you would add to this analogy. I, I've had friends that I've talked to and I said, it's really a lot in a way like a marriage. You're bringing two families and two traditions in. And I can't look at my wife and go, you know, I don't really like your home at Christmas time. so we're just going to always do Christmas the way I did it. But <laughs> we, I have to go into those things. The other thing is, if, my, if I've hurt my wife, either intentionally or unintentionally, I can't just look at her and say, hey, babe, get over it, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's in the past, and we just need to move on i've got to enter into her hurt into her pain and she needs to know that i'm empathizing and ultimately at least the word i hear from my sweet wife is i want you to understand what i'm going through and the hurt that i'm experiencing how can even looking at marriage help us think through entering into because in the same way we're joining family we are conjoined family in the blood of christ how can we think through that analogy even as we join together in worship
1: Man, I think that was a I thought that was a great analogy because I'm even thinking about marriage is ultimately a covenant. The thing that binds you together, even in the midst of your disagreements and idiosyncrasies, is the fact that you made a covenant before God. Well, also there there's another covenant. I don't know how other churches feel about church membership, but we have a covenant of church membership, which means that we're all included in the body of Jesus Christ, which means that that covenant binds us together even in places where we might disagree or we might have different opinions about things. And so similarly to what you just said, like, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't enter into a covenant in marriage and say, hey, listen, I don't like the way you do things. I'm going to do what I want, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, we, we give and we take. And not only do we apologize and we repent, we also, as, uh, as I think the, uh, John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, we produce fruit. Along with repentance, which means that we don't constantly just say, Oh man, I'm sorry. But we actually make the changes necessary in order mm. to make people feel more comfortable and at home, right? Mm. And that's going to always mean dying a bit to ourselves and our preferences in order to make that happen. And so if you're in a church community and you're not dying, <laughs> right? If you're not ever dying to yourself, if you're not ever in a place where you feel uncomfortable, that's probably an indication that you're probably doing it wrong. So um, I, I would agree with what you just said.
0: Yeah. Well, amen. And, and I, I think even right, especially godly husbands and wives, when my wife hurts, right? I hurt. I have pain. Um, when I hurt, she has pain. She hurts. And we need to love our brothers and sisters in that way, in that covenant type of way. Well, Quentin, you've had the opportunity to play athletics and we know just as a published fact. Athletics are an idol uh, of the United States of America. Uh, and, and it shows because people are suffering right now because we do not have uh, athletics going on. Seasons have been canceled. People are anxiously hoping that college football and the NFL will start back up. Um, but playing on sports teams, there's a perception that we have more racial unity within our sports teams than we even do in the church. Uh, as one who's played uh, on the collegiate and the professional level, do you find that's a true statement? And how have you seen more unity on the field than you do in the church?
2: That's that's definitely a factual statement. You know, when you go through the, the constant battles and the daily grinds and the daily struggles and the failures and, you know, and the successes with your teammates, You know, you form a bond together in this unbreakable bond. And whereas in the churches, it can be that way, but I don't necessarily say that it is a consistent thing. But in the locker room, that's definitely a thing. Um, Personal experience, uh, some of my best friends are white. And, you know, It's been a a great experience for me, personally, because we encourage each other, we are brothers in faith, and we can challenge one another, you know, and push each other to our limits on the daily.
0: Yeah, Quentin, I think even one of the things I would just even ask you about, right, is one of my kids' favorite movies and friends, and I'm not just saying this because we're on this panel, I have watched this movie so many times uh, that I think I could start quoting it is Remember the Titans. Um, They love that movie. Uh, They uh, they literally, that is the go-to. Usually if we don't know what else we're going to watch. And the thing that I love about that movie is uh, when they get off that bus for training camp, there is division, but they bleed together. They work together. They sweat together. How do you see what happens and the work that happens? Cause you have that unity on a team, but it, it's not just instant. Like, I, I, I mean, I'm sure when you first put on that Crimson Tide Jersey, it wasn't just completely unified. A lot of it is you sweat in the locker room together. Um, we know coach Sabin has some pretty intense practices. What kind of work goes into finding that unity on a team that we really need to see happen in the church?
2: Oh, wow. Um, that's a great question. Well, it starts in the off season from a football perspective. It starts in the off season, And something you've got to develop is teamwork and trust and that your brother's going to do his job in order to do – so you can do your job so we can collectively do this, accomplish our team goal, right? And then it's just continual practice of it. So once you can identify an uh, issue – address it and then let's together work towards a collective goal in order for us to work, for example, for us winning a national championship Mm -hmm. in comparison.
0: Brother Alton, kind of taking that with a church, right? Um, And you and I both love the crimson tide as a football team and we're proud of those national championships uh and we you know people are sick of us winning the national championship. <laughs> about it, i'm right? not i'm not even <laughs> there's a goal right there's a goal in that and not taking you know but taking something away from that we have a higher call and goal in the gospel of christ jesus to preach this gospel to every tribe tongue and nation how would you encourage us as white people and black people to get in the locker room, to go through the training, because we have a goal that is so much more important than a national championship and ultimately that lasts eternally. How would you use that analogy to encourage us as a church to come together for this great goal that we have?
3: Yeah, um, just, you know, as Quentin was talking about building an off-season that time of trust building and I truly believe, and I can just speak for myself, when God eventually moved me into a diverse spaces in the church and it was really um, a different time for me. I didn't realize how much of the deep-seated worldviews that I had in my heart about whites. That's why when my brother quoted Romans 12, 1 and 2, we we typically preach that text in a way that's dealing with our sexual ethics, but we never moved that text into how did we view other ethnic groups of people? And, And so I had to go through a, a deep, surgical, <laughs> heart-wrenching. So here's one. From the time I was a little boy, I was told not who I could not trust, no mm-hmm. matter what it was. So now I'm in church, I'm reading my Bible, and then looking at the white guy, <laughs> but I've been told <laughs> I could never, under any circumstances, ever trust white people. That at the end of the day, I'm going to get backstabbed. I'm going to get hurt. They're going to always be white. And so I say to to the church, this is why I say it goes back to the church. As Quentin says, we have to do the hard work in the gospel of working through these deep-seated stereotypes and Worldviews that we've all been told on both sides, mm. on all sides, about this person, about these people group, this people group. And we have to work through that stuff and begin to see each other as Christ sees us all that we are his brothers, that we are his sons and his daughters, and that God wants us not when we get to heaven. Please hear me, church. When we get to heaven, there will be no more arguments. There would be no more strongholds. There would be no more demons to fight. God wants us to live out the Ephesians three ten mandate now through the church that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the powers in the in the heavenly authorities. So we need to live that out now. So my plea to the church: Why are we waiting? What are we waiting for? Let's push into this gospel of grace and begin to live out that true um, rendering of the gospel on this side. And, man, I am preaching that with all of my heart. And that's what God is doing here in Birmingham. Yes, I know for a reason why God brought me here to Birmingham. So he can say, I'll show y'all. I'll show y'all who the real God is. And and I truly believe for such a time as this, God has allowed all of the false, um, what looked like reconciliation on some parts to kind of come to an end of itself. Because right now, we have reached a point right now where no one will be able to come together under no circumstances, black and white especially, unless there is a true rendering of that gospel that Paul and all the apostles preached and gave to us to put our foundation upon, and I truly believe if there was ever a moment for the American church to really step into this, and I can tell you this, everyone's gonna suffer. If you say you like white people, you're getting canceled. If the white person say they're it, you're getting, everybody's gonna get canceled. But guess what? While the world is canceling us, which is no shouldn't be any surprise to any of us if we're Christians, because Jesus told us very clearly, that the world would not like us. But while they're canceling us, guess what's happening with us? We're becoming one. Mm. Because while we're being canceled by the world, we're being accepted by the one who made us and called us to himself through the cross of that grace. And that's my message to the church. Let's be canceled together. The world's going to be what the world's going to be, but let us be the one. Let us be the manifold of every tongue and tribe and people group and nation, rich and poor, black and brown, all together. Why? Demonstrating the gospel to the world that we're now living in. And we don't all have to wait to get to heaven to to display God's manifold wisdom. We get to live it out now and to show the powers that be that Jesus Christ really is who he says he is. He's really God. He's a God man. And he's really the one who sits on the throne of glory, and he is going to give his eternal plan, for which he says in that text, Ephesians three eleven, which he has been working on for all the generations that Paul said he kept hidden. But right now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. I believe that's my hat to hang. That's what I'm preaching in. That's what I believe. And God is doing that in Birmingham. Mm. Yeah, I've been counseled. That's okay. Because when Satan got it, Jesus took me from Satan and got a hold of my heart, Satan counseled me then. So I'm all right. I'm good with the counsel. Hey, counsel me. I'm walking with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's the message I think we all need to hear more than ever. Let's be counseled together by the world so that we could be that church. And they'll say, why are we all loving each other? Jesus. Why are we loving each other? Jesus. Why are we hanging out? Jesus. We won't be able to say anything else. It'll be all Jesus. No one will be able to say, well, I got brought in here because of somebody, some job or some fair or something this." No. While we're loving each other, Jesus and his grace. That's the only reason why we're here together. And that's the message I think the church can only tell. And no other entity, no other institution, no other anything can tell that story but the church because we know grace.
0: Amen. Amen. Brother Eric, I know that what we see going through right now is also affecting families and especially parents are, are having to work with how do we discuss these things with our children? Um, How do we prepare our children? How do we help them to consume these images that we're seeing on our screens of, of men getting suffocated on streets in Minneapolis and men getting, you know, that bear the image of God getting gunned down in neighborhoods in South Georgia. And I know that for both Black children as well as white children. There's real fear and anxiety over what they see and, and what they feel and, and, and the unrest. I, I have a dear family friend who have adopted two children from Africa, and they have a 13-year-old, beautiful, handsome, young Black son who loves to jog in their predominantly white neighborhood, and he's really feeling fear from things and images that he's seen. How do you can't counsel parents to talk to their children about what they see going on and about the unrest that we see going on in our country
1: and man that's a really good question. I mean I currently have currently <laughs> I have two kids I have a, a three year old and a two year old and, and for them um, it, I think they're a, they're a bit young for me to go to the depths that I would like to eventually go with them. but I do think at the very beginning, what I do need to do is expose them. Uh, to, um, to positive role models that look like them, <laughs> right? Um, and so I, I do think, especially for my white brothers and sisters and my white parents who may, have, who may have children who are a bit too young for you to start talking about terms like injustice and, I mean, uh, and, and all that stuff, one of the most helpful things that you can do is to expose your kids through the literature that they read, the shows that they watch. Uh, to dispose them to heroes and heroines that that don't look like them, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, when you are able to explain some of the injustices and pains that minorities, specifically African Americans, um, the injustices that they're going through going through in American history and even now, it will be even more absurd to them, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but when it comes to children who are old enough, I think the best thing that you can ever do is one to be honest about it, two to know where your child is at and what they can, um, and, and and what they can handle, and and be gentle in that way. Then also share um that there's a hope that we have even in the midst of injustice and oppression that we can't solve, and that's the hope that we have in Christ now, and we have a hope in the new heavens and a new earth in which He'll make everything right. Mm-hmm. And so what He's done, even with children as young as nine, ten, eleven, and twelve. If you trust it and believe in Jesus Christ, he's actually given us the, uh, the, the work of reconciliation. Um, and so I, I do think there's a way in which we can actually express to our children that, yeah, like God has given that to you as well. So in your schools or in your relationships in the neighborhood, um, how are you uh, being a vessel of reconciliation um, rather than um, possibly um, mirroring uh, some of the prejudice that we see in the world? And so I don't know that was helpful, but that's, that's my crack at it.
0: Yeah. Well that, I know for white brothers and sisters, and even in just a minute, I'm going to ask Quentin about transracial families, but brother Eric, I know that you've got two boys and you're going to have to one day talk to them yep. about getting stopped by a police officer.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Talk to me about how you prepare them for that in the world that we live in, that a black boy has to be prepared differently than a white man.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's something my wife and I have talked uh, a lot about, man, and when that day comes, like we'll definitely sit down and have that conversation with them. Um uh, but right now I think the biggest things that we're doing with them is one, exposing them to a variety of people, um that, that um that um look different than them and look the same to them. And then also explaining uh to them the purpose, the per the actual purposes of these institutions that are vehicles of injustice, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're explaining to them who police officers are and what they do, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, we're explaining to them who all these other public service are and what they do so that, like I said before, when we actually explain to them there are people who commit injustices from those areas, they'll be able to see, wow, what they're doing doesn't match up with what they should be doing, Mm -hmm. right? And so and just teaching them th- these things, I think we're preparing them for those kind of conversations, if, right. if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Quentin, I know your story of adoption is a little bit different, but how would you say that growing up in a transracial environment, in your in a home, in a place where you were loved and cared for, what were things that your parents did well to equip you for growing up as an African-American man in the United States? And what are things that you would counsel other families who have, who are white, but have African-American children in their home that they're loving and teaching and growing? What are some things that you would tell them to do to help equip their children?
2: Oh, great question. Well, a lot of things that um, I had to learn in my home, believe it or not, um, my father, he was an alcoholic and he wasn't very present in my life. Once my mom passed, so a lot of things that that I had to learn on my own, I related to to football in a sense. Um, some advice I would give to families: um, you have to be honest with with about these conversations. Um, I say, depending on the age group of your kids. Um, what was that message oh I'm sorry but depending on the age group of your kids it will ultimately determine how you approach the situation um me i have two boys one five and one seven months so i have a little while before i have to you know have these conversations with them But like Eric said, I'm definitely gonna expose them to being around a diverse group of people and that's how they're gonna grow up. But ultimately, it's it's gonna start at home and I'm gonna, my my wife and I, we're gonna teach the love of Jesus. And it it starts at home. So that's that's gonna be my approach. And that's something that I would recommend Mm -hmm. to other families. because if you look at a lot of things that's going on today in today's world and t- society today, a lot of I feel like a lot of stuff can be prevented by how you raise your kids and how you talk to your kids. So that's just my opinion about it. Some may disagree, some may agree. But a lot of stuff is rooted at, at home.
0: Eric, touch on a little bit more just on how to prepare families, transracial families, through adoption.
1: You know, I, I first wanted to say, man, cool, and I'm so encouraged by your story, man, and, and what God has done in your life, brother, through walking through this process, man, and having experience here. Um, I, I do think one of the things that I've found that I think families can do, especially when they're adopting transracially, um, is to do the hard work of creating an environment that will foster a healthy self-image for the child that they're adopting, right? And I think there's a number of ways that families can do that. Um, and, I, and I know what I'm about to say is not available to all families. So say if you live a town, in a town that's all white, it's, it's hard to do this. But one of the things I do think you owe to your children is to, one, foster um, uh, di- foster diverse relationships so that your child could be exposed to people who look like them, even though you might not look like them. So... Um, so that they don't grow up with this, it, it can be even in, it could be unintentional, but they can grow up with a sense of inferiority if all they see mm-hmm. is people that don't look like them. Right. And then also I think one area in which I know people may be hesitant to do this, but I think this is key. Uh, I do think there's a temptation in adoption, um, when it comes to transracial adoption, um, to have a, a, a possible savior complex. Mm. Um, but one of the ways in which you can you can um, work to divest yourself of that is to invest in other relationships where you actually sit under the authority of minorities, right? Mm-hmm. And so what might it look like for you to have an African-American doctor? Like, what might it look like you for you to go to a church that has an African-American pastor or is primarily African-American? Because I, I do think that can help with the understanding that, hey, listen, when it comes to transracially adopting a black or or minority child, it's, I'm not saving them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm demonstrating the love of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And it's helpful for that child to see, wow, my white parent is intentionally submitting themselves to the authority of somebody who looks like me. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that's what I would say.
0: Amen, that's rich, brother, I appreciate that. Brother Hardy, you know, family is the fabric of our society. And, you know, Christ Jesus, the gift that he gave to humanity was the gift of a family, a mom and a dad that in a perfect world are modeling Christ in the church, a family that shows the fatherhood of God. Um, How can our families make an impact right now in our world?
3: I just, yeah, I think what the two brothers just said, um, living out. That um, authentic gospel diversity, in an authentic way, um, not out of guilt, but just out of the overflow, together, uh, and and I, I, I sense now more than ever, everything is almost prescribed. It's almost it's not organic. It's like, and I just don't think our Lord. Um, would have, knowing this was going to come about, would have just made it just difficult, where it just has to, can't just be organic, loving each other. Um, And so I think um, Christians of all hues of all backgrounds, just live out of community and relationship together, eat together, uh, and just. Not try to um just let it flow out of the out of the trueness of your heart and I, I keep coming back to that um and um that's that's where I would say that's what I would encourage um in the adoption of, of as my brother was saying, you know I've seen a lot of that and um I, you know, I've, you know, I get a lot of phone calls from parents who have adopted um, African American kids, and and you know, they're asking me what what I recommend, what books to I recommend. You know, I'm getting a lot of those text messages today, just in light of what's going on. And you know, it's, I'm trying not to be, you know, what there is there is no book. It's just, I mean, <laughs> it's simple, right? Um, you love Jesus? Yes. Okay. Um believe he loves you? Yes. Okay. Then love and and be authentic in the love. And that's what I'm saying. I think people have to work do have to work through some of the social stereotypes that we've all have had put upon us. And um and we have to work through that stuff. And but But being together in diverse communities does help. And so I speak to this, guys, this is for myself. When God put me in in the white spaces of church, I didn't realize how much, here again, self-loathing I had in me. When I was in black folks, I didn't have to think about it. So God said, "Okay, you're good over there. Now I'm going to put you over here. And I got all these PhDs sitting in front of me. I said, "Uh uh-oh, I'm from Sardis. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I said and in most spaces where I'm at now I'm usually the leader among the who's who and and people I get asked this question all the time from my black brothers I said man Pastor Hardy how did you learn how to lead in those spaces and I said I said I'm to be as simple as I can Jesus had to go deep in me and letting me know that I was made by him, creating his image and his likeness. Mm -hmm. And that took away any agenda on Pastor Hardy's heart from here on out and trying to agendalize everything. And where I go, Jesus is in me and it's organic. And, And I say to people, that was a process. Go deep, let the Lord deal with all of what's there inside of you. So whether you have adopted a black kid or a white kid or whatever it is, you're being truly you in the, in how God has made you, and you can also affirm that person. And so, and I saw, so I say, um, just dive deeply in that reality. God made all the people. Mm. Um, I got a lot of mixed couples in our church, and um, uh, mixed couples, but uh, uh, biracial individuals that are black and white. And one of the guys recently, he was crying. He was like, man, you know, Pastor Harvey, I'm just so tired. And his daddy's black, his mom is white. And I brought them up in front of the church. And, cause I hear people say, all oh, white people are racist. You know, just the general conversations that are out there now. And I said, man, how did that make you feel? And he said, it's hard. Mm. And and I, I challenged our congregation. I said, guys, when we say things in generalization, we're hurting people. If someone is racist, say that person's name who's racist. Don't just say all white people. Because I said, which side are you on, man? He says, I'm black and white. My, my cousins, my uncles, my grandmother, my they're white. and. And I tell you right now, this conversation is not being had, but mixed people are really having a difficult time right now because of the generalizations that are being thrown Mm -hmm. out there. So I say back to the church, be Mm -hmm. Christ-like. God-made people. Understand there are racisms out there, Mm -hmm. but let's be God-loving people towards all people, and let's try to live that out and be mindful of of that and uh, and and try not to prescribe it as much as you just live it out organically of who you are as a believer in Christ. That's what I, I would say, how we address our families and you do that. Just being truly Christian, not anything else, just being truly a Christian as Christ has described it to us in the word of God. That's what I would say.
0: Amen. Well, Eric, I have a, uh one more question that I'd like to ask you, and then I want to go around the panel for just a last little bit of advice. But you're right there in the center of American political (laughs) uh, politics in Washington, DC. And certainly we know that this is a political issue because there are injustices um, that that are in our federal government. There are injustices in our system. This is a political issue. But how, as the church, do we need to make sure that our politics don't divide us, but that the gospel unites us?
1: No, uh, That's a great question, man, and, and that is true. Um, we, we're in a church where there are many people who work, uh, who work in jobs that uh, deal with both sides of the political aisle. And so because of that, when it comes to talking about these issues, they seem to think we're talking about political issues. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that we, we are having to do is to help people understand that, no, well before these were political issues, uh, th- th- these were Bible issues. Like th- uh, These aren't issues that are uh, primarily something uh, that we need to discuss politically. These are things that we actually need to discuss uh, so that we can be united, so that we can move forward um, as brothers um, and, 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 and sisters in Christ. And so I think the greatest thing that I can do uh, for people is simply to open up my bible and to show them why we're talking about it mm. right um and help them to understand that just because something overlaps with a political discussion doesn't mean that uh that that our political powers that be started the discussion <laughs> mm. um and so i i think that is a i think that's a helpful tip and that's the helpful thing uh that we do um here at our church
0: amen well to Those who have listened to this great panel, I just want to remind us, um, especially to white brothers and sisters, that you cannot begin to teach your children about racial injustice if your world and community is a cookie cutter resemblance of your skin color. Um, We must begin to expose our children and our own lives uh, to those that are different than us. We must make legitimate friends with people that are different with us. And ultimately, beloved, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, we have to engage in diverse community. And if that makes us uncomfortable, then we are going to be really uncomfortable with eternity with God, because heaven is going to be a kaleidoscope of diversity. Because our God, through his word and through his gospel, is adopting a multiracial, multiethnic family from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so as the Church of Jesus Christ, we must love diversity, because that is what our Jesus died for, is a multiethnic, multicultural, multiracial family. And so starting with my brother Eric, and then going to Quentin, and then ending with Pastor Alton, what are some verses, some resources, some podcasts, some books that you would suggest to folks that they can invest in uh, along this topic of racial injustice?
1: Yeah, um, I think uh, when it comes to the scriptures, uh, man, uh, Ephesians, Ephesians 2, man, is an uh, amazing bedrock uh, for the kind of unity that we're trying to pursue. Like We're not trying to pursue, one, a fake unity, Like we're trying to pursue uni- a real unity in Christ, And when we talk about reconciliation, we're not talking about returning to some previous time in which all (laughs) races were reconciled. They really didn't exist. What we're talking about is all of us actually returning to uh, the original relationship that humanity had with God. Mm -hmm. And on the basis of that relationship, we can be united with one another. Mm -hmm. And so all that to say, your Bible is an the starting point. But if you feel like, man, you're a bit unaware of like why olives is a big deal and why has issues of race and justice even crept into the church, I'll give you two book suggestions that may help open your eyes a bit. Um, There's one book called Divided by Faith. um, And that book is by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. Uh, It's a book that uh, really walks through um, the division that we see in churches. Um, And another that I would suggest as well uh, would be uh, The Color of Compromise uh, by Jamar Tisby. Mm -hmm. Uh, he writes in that book how the American church has not just been passive when it comes to racial division in our country, we've actually been complicit. And so uh, I think those are those are two books that I might suggest.
0: Quentin.
2: First, I'm gonna start off with a quote from a, a, a former coach of mine, Nick Saban. I think um, in order for us as a country to go to where we need to, where we think we can go, we have to do something that we're not comfortable with doing, right? And I know it's a complex statement, but there's a lot of truth to that. I th- there's a there's a lot of different resources out there that you can do that you can look into to educate yourself um, about these various topics. Um, one thing that I've done, my wife, she's she's Japanese, and we we started a book club about these social injustice issues. We're reading how uh, to be an anti-racist, and um, that's just one form of it. Me trying to help her understand these things, right? Because she she really doesn't, <laughs> to be honest. But um, I'm sure there's a lot of different podcasts out there. I don't know of any personally. I, I haven't listened to any, but I, I know that people out there are talking on podcasts. But that's just my opinion about it. I think in order for us to, to take the next step as a country, we have to do something that we're not comfortable with doing.
0: Mm. And I know uh, Jamar Tisby, who wrote uh, the book that Eric mentioned, also has a really good podcast as well, if you're into podcasts. Um, that is great to listen to. So Pastor Alton, what are some resources that you would suggest?
3: I uh, was just like my brother, start with the scriptures, Ephesians two, um, Ephesians three, and then just read the end book of Revelation. Just um, read the um, the end where it's all headed, just to, just to, even though what we're seeing is not always is dim, but make sure just go to the end. There is a diverse bouquet. That God is will have when His when this thing is all over. Um, I would encourage people, um, and I think this is really important. Well, not any. I will recommend the book but, um, um, "Divided by Faith" as well. But I said more than that. I think um, seek out and find people who have walked through the hallways of of experiencing real racial injustice, Mm. but who have come out on the other side, gospelized, Mm. Stay away from young people who can only give you information, but they haven't been able to walk through. Find your Josephs. And I say, um, to God be the glory. Yeah, I have my stories, John Perkins, people like that, because right, right now, if people I and mean, I see this a lot. I see a lot of people talking. You can tell me about forgiving. You can quote the scripture, but we're smart people. We can tell when somebody's carrying a spirit of bitterness. Mm. It just has a way of coming out. Mm. And uh, I would encourage people as they're looking and you know find some people you know they are speaking truth, but um. I can talk about race stuff all day. I got the wounds to show it. <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, Pastor Hart, how hey, you get to a place where you walk in peace and harmony with white brothers and sisters now. Um, that's where I'm going to take you straight to the cross, personally, experientially. And there are a lot of people who can talk about the past and all of the things that have been done wrong. That's all they can do is take you down the path of history, but they may make a mention of Jesus, but they haven't gone there yet. They just, in fact, some of them will probably say, I don't know if Jesus can do anything with it, to be honest with you. So I'm encouraging people. I know Dr. Perkins is on his, he's been around a long time, but find men and women who have lived through the reality of being done wrong, like a Joseph story. But then he can say or she can say, but it was God. Mm-hmm. Um, it was God that got me from Sardis. It was God that put me, allowed some of these things to be. I don't understand it all, not saying it didn't hurt, it didn't cause pain, that I didn't cry and I didn't lose myself in it. But in the end, I can say now, being in Birmingham, but it was God. Mm-hmm. It was God. And that's what Joseph to. Yeah, 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 brother, I get you. Y'all did me wrong. It was your intent. You you tried to hurt me. In fact, you wanted to kill me, but it was God. Find those people, submit to them, listen to them. And they they got a lot of wisdom to help walk us through in this time so we can have the kind of church that we want to see. And that, that would be my encouragement.
0: Amen. Well, brothers, I thank you. And I, I would add as well, a book that has been, Extremely helpful. I've, I've, I've actually had the opportunity to read the books mentioned, but another one was Letters to the Birmingham Jail, a response to the words of Dr. Martin Luther King that was edited by Brian Leritz. Uh, it, was a, it was a great eye-opening uh, book as well. Uh, also, uh, would just encourage folks to listen to Charlie Dates out of Chicago, his preaching. Uh, you can hear the preaching of my brother, Eric Saunders, as well as another brother, Mike Kelsey from McLean Bible Church. You can look up Urban Hope Church and listen to my brother Alton Hardy. Um, But I would encourage my white brothers and sisters to sit under the teaching and to sit under the encouragement and the authority of Scripture being preached by our African-American brothers and sisters. It is a delightful, delightful experience. And so, brothers, thank you. And in closing, I just want to say as a white man in the United States of America, I'm sorry. And I'm sorry that for so long, the church has failed to see how you beautifully demonstrate the image of God. And I wanna let you know uh, that you've taught me, you've encouraged me, and each and every one of you over this last hour have shown me uh, a piece of the image of God and shown me the heart of our Father. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for you joining us. So thank you.